Let's go. Let's go, people. Let's go. Hello, Rich Bolas here, and thank you for downloading this episode of the Dad Mindset Show. I want to say a big thank you for everyone who supports the podcast by writing a review on Apple. I know I shouldn't be searching for external validation, but hey, it is so good when someone writes a review. It also helps adjust the algorithm to prioritize the show in searches so that other people can find it too. So big hug and heartfelt thanks. Now today I have Scott H. Young on the show, real treat. Scott is the author of the book Ultra Learning, in which he describes the principles to master hard skills quickly. It's a fantastic read, or listen, which I highly recommend. In this chat, Scott and I discuss how you can specifically apply these principles to the busy life, work balance, impossible job of being a parent. I hope you enjoy this chat with Scott as much as I did. Scott H. Young, welcome to the show. Oh, it's great to be here. It's such a long time in the making in in many respects because I was a big fan of your MIT challenge. And what was that sort of over 10 years ago now? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm dating myself now, but I've been writing this website where I've been like writing about learning and uh, studying and and in particular doing some of these kinds of projects. But I mean, yeah, it's, it's I've been doing it for like 15 years. <laughs> longer than that 16 years now it's, it's just been it's been a wild ride especially on internet terms that's like it makes me a dinosaur that's <laughs> it like you you're one of the founders of the internet essentially <laughs> the founding fathers no 15 years it's like <laughs> you were chiseling it on a stone tablet basically yeah it's not too far from the truth um yeah. now so you started this this blog essentially after turning 18 in an effort to find out yeah. the ideal way to live and after yeah. what a thousand articles or so it's, it's really sort of focused <laughs> in on the best ways yeah. to learn hasn't it can you it's ex- taken me a while hey no, <laughs> hey, no. no I, I, yeah i mean i i think it's it, I, like i started blogging when that was kind of like a thing and and i um i was really gravitating toward a lot of personal development self-improvement kind of material it was helping me in my life a lot and you know i didn't have a lot of people to share it with so i did what other people did and i started a website and i'm just like you know writing out my ideas things i've been reading that kind of stuff and I think uh, it gravitated towards learning because uh, as as an 18-year-old kid, um, I didn't know anything. <laughs> and so the only thing I could really write about was, um, you know, the experience of being a student, of studying. And, you know, learning seemed like an appropriate topic given that, uh, you know, as an 18-year-old, you, you really don't know anything. You know even less than you think you know uh, at 18. And so hopefully, I mean, now I'm uh, in my mid-30s, I've learned a few things, but there's still still quite a ways to go. I'm sure the the, the listeners who are, you know, in their um, twilight years will, will probably comment on how much they've learned since they were in their 30s. So they can kind of correct me on, <laughs> on any perceived overconfidence I have. Oh no, I, I completely, uh, I, I completely hear where you're coming from. And uh, as I have said before in the past, you know, I used to be an amazing parent before I had kids, and it's so, <laughs> it's, it's so true. Yeah, yeah. But um, just before we get into that, because I really want to hear yeah. your perspective on how parenting has changed your approach to learning. Can you briefly describe what ultra learning is? Because that's what your yeah. your recent book is called. Isn't well, it? yeah. So the the book is called Ultra Learning, and I mean. Uh, ultra learning, the way I define it in the book is uh, intensive self-directed learning. So the idea of like picking a project, like I want to learn a language, a musical instrument, doing this, and then sort of constructing this self-directed learning approach. And I, I focus on the book on people who are like 
really obsessed with like doing it as efficiently as possible, as opposed to, you know, how some people are like, well, you know, maybe I'll take up painting and then they just like kind of dabble a little bit and maybe they get a little better. This is like, no, no, no. I wanted to focus on people who are, you know, I'm going to learn a language in three months, or I'm going to become the best public speaker in the world or, or things like that, where it's a kind of somewhat crazy sort of project. And, and that was sort of exciting. So I took um, some of the projects that I've done as well as like lots of other stories and assembled it into this book. So ultra learning is, um, you know, the term actually wasn't mine. This was something that Cal Newport used to describe one of the projects that I did. And it kind of stuck after that, but I kind of, uh, the analogy I was drawing is, you know, when you hear about people doing like ultra marathons, it has a similar kind of like, Ooh, that's maybe a bit intense, but you know, I bet those people know something about running. So that, that was sort of the idea that uh, I wanted to kind of carry forward. But, but the book is really about learning generally. I think there's something in it for everyone, even if, even if you're not planning on doing something so intensively. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more, Scott. And I think it, it's interesting because you talk about doing like learning projects or, or, or taking mm-hmm. a, a condensed amount of time to actually learn yeah. something that you really want to learn. I couldn't think of a more important time to read your book than when you're a parent because your time is completely it's it's yeah. completely changed your your whole ability to get anything done it essentially oh, yeah. goes well, out the window so what what oh, is yeah. that actually well, we been, joking about this. yeah what has yeah. that actually been like for you like as soon as you became yeah. a parent how did all your learning projects sort of all your approach to learning change yeah i mean yeah, well, we were just talking about this before you hit record that like, uh, you know, when I was doing this MIT challenge project, which was doing all these MIT courses in this short period of time, you know, it was tiring. But, you know, end of the day, I've been studying for 12 hours, 7 p.m. It's like, OK, I'm done. You know, I can go <laughs> off and like have a beer or, you know, relax and watch TV or something. Whereas when you're a parent, it's never done. Right? It's <laughs> yes. always, there's always like, OK, no, I got to go pick them up from daycare. I got to make dinner. I got to get bath ready, blah, blah, blah. blah. <laughs> This is how it is. And so I think there's a few ways that my thinking is probably shifted. I think one of them is just recognizing how you often have to be flexible. Like I, I would sort of carve out these sort of, okay, I'm going to work this hour to this hour on this kind of learning project. And now it's sort of like, okay, how much time is left over to do something at the end of the day? I think another way that I've shifted my thinking as well is I've been trying to find ways that I can kind of synergize learning with other things that I was going to do anyways. So as an example, um, I always try to find ways that I can do learning projects that work with work projects, because then you can do it during the working hours yeah. and, and then it's doing that. Um, or like if there's a learning project that I can synergize with, you know, uh, some kind of recreational activity that I, I might want to to do, you know, so that it's like also counts as exercise <laughs> or it also counts as like, this is a way to see my friends so that I'm not just like in a library all evening, this kind of thing. So I think finding those ways to synergize has been really a, an important shift. Um, and so I think that's in some ways changed the things that I learned. Like uh, I really liked programming a lot when I was uh, in my early twenties, but I don't do as many programming projects now because they don't usually make as much sense as work projects. It's usually like more efficient to hire someone to do the programming and they don't really make sense as like social or physical activities. <laughs> so it's, it's, I, I like programming, but it's been kind of like, no, no, no. If I have to pick and choose, I'm going to be, you know, learning to like ski or, or rock climb for like exercise, or I'm going to be, you know, learning something that I can write about later so I can actually justify it as <laughs> yeah. in my working hours. So I think that these things have shifted how I learn things. But I mean, I, I, I definitely think that, you know, when you have kids 
especially if you add a full-time job on top of it. Yeah. You're not dealing with like, oh, I can spend 80 hours a week on some project. Yeah. It definitely changes your focus, doesn't it? And I mean, I think you wrote about at one stage during the pandemic, you actually were one of the few people that actually hired an office space. You know, you went the opposite (laughs) way. (laughs) And was that to actually carve out more time to actually get that work done? Well, uh, so that was actually my wife, uh, who very, you know, I was doing podcasts like these at home and I was like, I need, it needs to be quiet right at home. And we have a toddler at home and she's like, you need to get an office. Space. Yeah. Like I, I've got, I gotta, if I have to have this baby at home, I can't just be like, okay, baby, be quiet. Um, <laughs> yeah, You can't just turn it now. off. Uh, <laughs> Uh, so that was, I think I probably would have ended up getting an office space regardless, just having kids, but it was just sort of an irony that like everyone's working from home. I've been working from home for like, you know, 15 years and it's like, okay, you know what? It's time to try the whole commuting to the office thing. So, <laughs> so we rented some office space where I'm recording this from right now. And it's been really great. I mean, I think even just having uh, separation from work and home has been valuable. I, I don't know. I'm not always great at doing it. I often do emails at, at home. Um, uh, even if I'm, you know, should be, should be doing other things. But I think when you have a family that creating more of those boundaries, cause in my twenties, it was just like, just a complete blur. Like there was no difference between work and life. They always just inter intermixed, but, but now I'm feeling like it's much more important. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I guess now more so than ever as well, because, you know, there's so much more, I, I guess, pressure to spread, you know, into those those yeah. later hours or earlier and, and to actually have a physical sort of threshold that you cross where you put on a new sort of hat can be really useful, I think. Oh, I definitely. And I mean, I think I think it's also something about priorities, too, because I do think that we don't often step back and ask ourselves like, well, what, what actually matters to me? We just kind of go based on inertia. And so sometimes that can mean, you know, working way more than you, you wanted to work just because it's kind of, well, you know, I've got this email that I should respond to this kind of thing. And I'm guilty of this as much as anyone else. But then it's also, you know, oh, I'm like, I spent like two or three hours on Instagram or Reddit when like, you know, I could have been doing something more meaningful. So I think, we often don't step back and really look at like how we're investing our time. As so I think parenthood just, it, it can, because you have less of it, it really puts that into sharp relief. You know, as I said, <laughs> when I was in my early twenties and I would waste like two, three hours on Reddit or whatever, looking at YouTube or some social, it was like, whatever, I still have time to work on my business and yeah. socialize and do everything else. When you don't have time to do everything else, when you're at this, what I call like the productivity frontier, where <laughs> actually now everything involves trade-offs, you do actually have to start really thinking about it. Yeah, it's a really good point because, uh, I mean, you you bring up social media. That's that's such an easy one that we get drawn into, isn't it? Yeah. And, and you you had a a rest from that for a while. Like, how did you find that when you sort of step back from social media to a certain extent? Oh yeah, I haven't been on social media for maybe two years. I'm not sure exactly how long, which is weird because I my business has all these channels. So there's someone else who like <laughs> posts my articles, and I think we even have a guy on uh, who's making little like clips for Instagram and stuff because this is what I do for a living. So I'm required to do this uh, to have readers and this kind of thing. But it's weird because I'm not on it at all. So. Um, uh, I, yeah, I, I've stepped off of it entirely. I think it was motivated by a couple of things. One of them was just, again, becoming a parent and realizing, oh, I have no time. So it's either this or reading a book or it's this or, you know, working on something that's important to me. So again, that trade-off mentality. 
but the other thing too is that um, you know, I, I like I was on Twitter. Twitter was sort of my big kind of time suck addiction, and it's just it's so unrelentingly negative and <laughs> hostile. I'm just getting like more and more anxious. Um, I think it was like around the time when there was you know, the pandemic was happening. And so I was like getting my pandemic Twitter fears from there. And then it was, you know, general culture war stuff. And it was just like, you know, I just don't want to be there. Like, I just want to, I want to, you know, be in a different kind of space so that I'm not like stressing about, you know, some insignificant thing that happened 500 miles away or whatever. Right. Yeah. So I think for me, it was also an anxiety reduction (laughs) method of getting (laughs) off social media. You need all the help you can get when you've got a a, a toddler Mm. in the house, I think. And it yeah. sort of brings up uh, one of the questions I wanted to ask you, which is everyone just seems so busy these days. Um, yeah. Why do you think it is that everyone's trying to do so much? Yeah, I mean, I think I think some of it is just uh, our overall kind of culture. I think we we are in an environment where we're sort of saturated with media and information. And I think it just kind of creates this hectic quality. I think the way our brains were hardwired was from the sort of living on the savannah where like the interesting thing in the evening was the fireplace kind of like that was what our intentional circuitry has kind of evolved for. And so we're just not really built for an environment where you have, you know, essentially personal information about millions of people coming at you all the time there's so many of these things have have been sort of tuned for how our brains work that uh, I, I just think we're not really ready for that. So I think that that creates a kind of sense of hecticness. I think also there's, you know, I, I'm a big fan of Cal Newport. We've, we've worked, collaborated on things, and he has a really interesting argument in his latest book, um, A World Without Email, that um, our communication styles of how we collaborate has also um, created some of this as well, that he, he we work in what he calls this hyperactive hive mind mode, where we're just constantly sending messages back and forth, pinging back and forth, rather than what would make more sense, which is actually to sit in a room together and like, okay, work this out, and then we're going to go our separate ways. And uh, so I think that's one of the difficulties as well, is that we're increasingly working in these collaborative environments, but at the same time, we're not that good at collaborating. We're not that good at actually like managing this sort of um, workflow. So I think that also creates some of it. And then I think part of it is this, this kind of keeping up with the Joneses, like we're just have so many expectations for our lives that we maybe didn't have a hundred years ago. And those expectations to, you know, exercise every day and eat healthy and read books and meditate and, (laughs) uh, you know, like all of these things come at us. And so we feel like we should be doing all of them. And and sometimes that results in doing like a lot of them, not that well, (laughs) or, or feeling guilty about not doing them, which isn't the same as being busy, but I think you know, oh, I really should be doing this is, is like the kind of general sentiment that I think, you know, people in my generation uh, feel, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I think uh, <laughs> I've tried in the past, especially when I've been on work trips to, because you wake up jet lagged and you go, oh, I can do my mm. perfect morning routine. And you realize very quickly that your perfect morning routine, if you copy like what other people are doing, can <laughs> yeah. stack up to like four and a half hours or something ridiculous yeah. like that. You go, oh, if only I'm jet lagged all the time, I'd be able to fit that in. 
Well, I wrote this article um, a couple of years ago about what I called productivity guilt, but it was basically just this, this kind of like guilt that you're not doing everything. And, and I'm, I was fully aware of like how people like me are like complicit in creating this condition <laughs> because what will happen and I'm going to be like, I'm going to like, this is how the sausage is made people. But what will happen is that like, you know, I, I'll find some kind of thing that I've been doing recently and get excited about. Maybe it's like meditating or reading a book in the morning or whatever, but you know, what? I'm going to write about how this is great. And then I write this sort of post and then, you know, like how life actually evolves, you stop doing it. You start doing something else. You get excited about something new and you write about that too. And you write about all these things. And then what people perceive is that, Oh my God, this guy is just doing everything all the time. And so I'll get these calls of like, you know, you wrote in 2008 that, you know, you do this every day and like, tell us how that's been going for you two decades later, which is like, of course, not how normal human beings behave. Right. And so I think this productivity guilt idea is this idea that not that, not that any of those things are individually bad, but like, clearly you can't do all of them. Yeah. Clearly there are these trade-offs and that's actually what real people do. And you shouldn't feel guilty about making those trade-offs. Yeah. You You shouldn't feel guilty about doing that. And I've, I've had to deal with that myself because I mean, I write about learning these things. And so in particular, like the language learning is one that I, you know, I I really like learning languages. um, But I'm also aware that, you know, this was something that was more useful for me at a time where I was sort of actively traveling and like doing all these things. Maintaining seven languages speaking is hard (laughs) to do, like, especially at a speaking level, you actually do need to do practice, I would say at least monthly, preferably weekly to maintain them, you know, so you can still just be like, you know, where you start a conversation, it's not rusty. And, uh, you know, I just don't have time to do that these days. So what happens is that actually the, a lot of the languages that I'm not practicing regularly, they're a little rusty. I probably have to spend like about a week getting ready, um, to use them again. And so, uh, you know, that, that's obviously disappointing to people who, if you know, you, you like have a podcast, I, I remember I did, um, media for ultra learning and I had a Korean interview and they're like, okay, now for the Korean section of the interview. Sort of like, like, well, this is embarrassing. Cause I've just been talking about like it happened yesterday, yeah. learning Korean, but like in actual practice, maintaining it is hard. And so I think this is just another example of these things that like people like me contribute to this sense of like being omni-competent in everything. Because as soon as you let something slide, well, I'm not writing a blog article about like, man, my Spanish is really rusty. Like that doesn't surface, <laughs> yeah. but, but it's obviously true just given the fact that like you can't do everything. So I think productivity guilt, well, that was sort of my confessional attempt to sort of talk about this idea and about how, you know, this is okay. This is just an, a logical consequence of, of things taking up time in your day and, and don't feel bad about it. And so this whole idea that you're going to achieve this perfected state where you're doing literally everything and maximizing it all at the same time, is just, it's just not possible. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think going back to your point uh, about Carl Newport's uh, idea, the whole thing about email is kind of insane when you apply it to a physical realm like in the old days you'd go to the mailbox in the morning you go oh look i've got a couple of bills i've got a letter oh i've got a postcard and an aerogram cool and you sit down with your breakfast and you'd read an aerogram from your friend and then you would pay the bill a bit later on and and that was it 
and you wouldn't get any more mail until the following day. And I think that was that was definitely a very slow time, but it meant that you had lots of time to actually do deep work during the day. And yeah. if you're in an office, you had an in-tray, and you'd have in-tray, stuff that land in the in-tray once a day. Whereas these days, it's essentially like going to the mailbox every 45 seconds going, have I got any mail? Have I got any bills? Have I got any stuff? And then there's all this junk mail flying through as well. It's like, yeah. like that scene out of Harry Potter, where he's trying to like jam up the letterbox <laughs> and there's these invites to Hogwarts flying through the air. Well, you know, I think because uh, researching for these books, you're often reading like these biographies of famous people, scientists, whatever, um, you know, from hundreds of years ago. And uh, the, you become almost jealous of their correspondence habits. <laughs> I don't know. I don't like to be one of these sort of like, oh, I wish we were all living on the farm using, you know, whale oil. Lamps and stuff. <laughs> I don't want to be one of these people. I like technology. But um, there is a certain uh, appreciation you have of these people who would maintain like letter correspondences where, you know, it's like these famous mathematicians writing these long letters out to each other. And we still have them because people used to keep their letters. And, you know, there's these letters back and forth. I feel like we're in the total opposite extreme of that spectrum right now where everyone is doing these text message conversations. Have you ever been on like a text message thread? It's a nightmare, right? Like yeah. I, I'll look on it and it's like 15 messages since I turned my phone up and, <laughs> and I'm looking at it. Whereas it used to be, I'm going to write to one person and I will write this, you know, eight page handwritten letter where I've really thought about what they said and I've mulled it over and I've, because it took a week for it to get to them. So I'm not going to just like, churn something yeah out. and you had and, to forward think some of their questions oh you yeah. might think this and you were thinking through that the whole conversation as well so yeah i definitely think there's there's something kind of um there's something kind of nice about that about like kind of getting into depth and and, and i do think that technology is is partly to blame for that i think that we do um just again our savannah looking at the fireplace brains are just not built for tiktok and so um, you know, it's, it's this sort of, it's the, it's the attentional equivalent of like crack cocaine. It just it really, really works. And, uh, maybe not, it's not obviously as dangerous as crack cocaine, but I think it, it just has that, Ooh, you know what? I would really like something that changes every 10 seconds and I don't have to like invest any effort into it. It's, it's a hyper stimulus that, that we're not really evolved to acquire. So I do think it's sort of up to you as an individual, to try to curate your environment. Cause I mean, realistically, it's not going to change. I mean, people always write these op-eds about, Ooh, we should be changing how the world works. <laughs> yeah. Like this is, you know, McDonald's isn't going away. So you got to actually, now we live in a world where you got to have to make healthy food choices. You can't just eat whatever's tastiest. And similarly, we're now living in a world where it's not going to change. It's going to even get worse and worse. So you got to start cultivating your little attentional garden because otherwise it's just going to be full of garbage. I think that's right, Scott. And I think we just have to be way more deliberate, especially when there's a time pressure put on on what would normally be this expansive, you know, block of the week that you just had so much free time to do whatever you want with. When you're parenting, that changes drastically, doesn't it? Absolutely. I mean, I, you know, and it. I, I hate to be this person because there's a little bit of this like eat your vegetables vibe when we talk about this kind of stuff. <laughs> that's not my point at all. Like, I think... Um, my my view of it is very much just about being intentional. Like I, we, Cal Newport and I run this course called uh, Life of Focus, and this is sort of the premise of it. And I think it's important because sometimes when people are listening, it they think that well, what it's about is about being productive all the time, like using every second of your day to the max. 
And that's not really what it's about at all. Because I think if you sat down and decided, you know what, actually, I really like Instagram, I want to use it half an hour a day, that is fine, right? The problem is when you've decided I want to use it half an hour a day, and you use it four hours a day, right? Yeah, that's, that's where it becomes an issue. So it's only an issue when you're not actually, it's not about being productive. It's about like, doing the things that if you were like, in an ideal life, this is how I would live it, you know, when I step back and actually think about it. And so it's things like, well, you know, how, like I want to play with my kids and I want to, you know, maybe read this book or it could even just be like, I want to have time where I'm, you know, watching a television show with my spouse. Like that, that's also fine. So I think the, the main message is just intentionally doing things. It's not about, you know, like purifying yourself. Like there is sometimes this kind of, as I said, this eat your vegetables <laughs> um, sort of <laughs> attitude, whereas it's more just, you know, if you actually sat down and decided, how would you actually spend your time if you were serious about it and not just being productive all the time, doing things that you thought were fun and meaningful and important? What would you do? Well, I don't know. For me, it would be like, well, I'd probably do some recreational activities. I'd you know, go to some new places. I would spend time with my friends. I would do the kind of memory making things and not just like, did I do nothing the last six months? Like that, <laughs> that that's how I would, I would arrange it. But again, it's not about just working all the time or, or just doing things that are just hard and like not fun. You know, it, it is about intentionally using your attention. Yes. <laughs> yeah, totally. The alliterative <laughs> quality that makes it true. And I think, um, you know, when you talk about synergizing as well, I, I remember yeah. when we had kids uh, of toddler age. <laughs> when you had kids, yeah. <laughs> yeah, like, oh, I don't know, what, where yeah, did yeah. we put them? Um, yeah, yeah. I can tell you a whole story about that in Japan. But, um, <laughs> but so having like toddlers in, in those baby Bjorn sort of carriers and yeah. going, right, okay, I can get some lunges in, you know, you, I can actually get some exercise in here or uh, with yeah. the, the, the chariot on the back of the bike. You go, that's actually mm. a pretty good Peloton workout. You know, you've got a, yeah. a 25 kilo <laughs> couple of kids in the back of a chariot that's that's going to make you sweat way more than uh, uh some of the other sessions that you might have done in the past so yeah almost like identifying what's important and then maybe trying to stack something onto it like a not not a habit stack as much like for remembering but more yeah. a case of like you say synergizing some of the things that you have to do with some of the things you want to do and and trying to make them work together well, I mean, again, it's 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 just a sort of straightforward issue of I have these maybe 10 things that I'd like to learn. If they can also check some other boxes, it yeah. just makes it easier to justify them. So as I said, it's it's if I can be like, oh, this actually makes sense as a work project, then I can. And it's also something that's interesting to me, something I wanted to learn, then that's easier than, well, this has nothing to do with work, right? Whereas before I might have been able to just do both. And similarly, like, well, I always, I also have to exercise. So maybe, you know, like I've, I've been going, uh, not, not well, but I've been doing a little bit of bouldering, uh, at a bouldering gym and like, that's kind of fun too. So it's, you get to do, you get to do a little bit of both. I mean, this isn't anything revolutionary. I'm sure parents have already understood this principle, but I think that is something that has affected how I choose learning projects is that I'm looking for things that are in this kind of the Venn diagram of like <laughs> yeah. my life. It has to be really in the center in order to have time for it now yeah totally that's a really good way of putting it now um i'm pretty sure just changing tack slightly here scott yeah. that richard foman would be one of your favorite learning inspirations who would you yeah. say i mean i'm just just a wild mm. guess there but <laughs> who would you say has inspired you most in being a parent Ooh, 
this is going to sound corny, but actually my, my parents uh, were a big influence on me. I mean, it's weird to say because you talk to people who have these like horror <laughs> childhoods and they're like, I'm never going to be like my dad kind of thing. But I mean, my, my parents were great. I think they taught me a lot of important life lessons and they, I think they balanced things fairly well. So um, my, um, my parents were both early childhood educators. Um, and my dad taught grade one, I think, for most of the time I was in grade school. And my, my mom taught grade three and grade four. And I think they just had, um, they had a good life philosophy on things. They, they, you know, they emphasize learning and, you know, structure and this kind of thing. But they also weren't, they didn't go in the other direction of, you know, you can have these real helicopter parents that just, just schedule every last minute and I'm going to turn my kid into the next, you know, sports champion or super genius or whatever. I think they, they managed to, to have both of that. And so, yeah, I, I don't know. It's, it, as I said, it sounds corny, but often when I'm doing parenting, I'm kind of like, you know, how did my parents do it? Because <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I think they managed to, yeah, they managed to pull it off. It's amazing, isn't it? Because essentially you would have learned by being role modeled. And, and I think yeah. that stuff goes so deep. And I know you've mentioned in the past how what you think you're learning about a subject is way bigger than what you're actually learning mm -hmm. you know you've got a picture yeah. of like a football size thing yeah, of what yeah. you think you're learning and then what you're actually learning is it the the theory of transfer that... right yeah i mean the transfer idea is just basically that people have people have a sort of fuzzy picture about what it is that you're actually learning when you learn things and so i think there is a very common sense that um that we're learning very very broadly um, and, and the research shows that actually what people learn is, is mo more specific. So I do think that that is, uh, you know, it does, I don't know whether it fits in with this whole, uh, parenting discussion and, you know, how you're raising your kids and this kind of thing, but I do think it's, it's related in this sense that, uh, you know, if you're trying to get good at something, if you're trying, you have to have kind of fairly specific kinds of practice and you have to have fairly specific things that you're trying to achieve and, and targets. Whereas people often have this kind of, like, I, I argue against this, um, this metaphor that the mind is like a muscle, yeah. which is one that we often have, which is this like, kind of like, I'm going to, you know, really like think hard and do this. Brain training is like the <laughs> yeah. sort of worst example of this. You see these ads for like, mm, solve these little puzzles and you're going to become smarter. And then you look at the research they're using and it's always that, well, the puzzle is like the test that you use to measure yeah. the ability. It's rigged. And it's like deconstructing totally a textbook. Rigged. It's totally yeah. rigged. The whole thing is like that. And I mean, sometimes you, it, this is like the real kind of like, you don't want to be that guy, but a lot of the research is also like this about tons of subjects. People are like, oh, well, I want to be smarter. So I'm going to learn chess. Chess is great. I think it's fun. If you want to be good at chess, that's good. Learning chess mostly helps with chess <laughs> and, <laughs> you know, maybe slightly with some games that are similar to chess. It's probably not going to help you with math. It's probably not going to help you. Certainly not going to help you with like a lot of other things. So people will say, well, you know what? I became a great business leader because I had this, you know, great experience, you know, with high school football. Well, maybe you did learn a few things. I don't want to say there's zero transfer in, in those lessons, but the, the way that you learn to be good in business is through business and, and through business education and through like experience, hands-on experience doing it. And so I think that's true of a lot of things. And so that is a somewhat more pessimistic tone for learning because it would be really nice if the brain was like a muscle yeah. and all you had to do was just some bulk practice with reasoning or memory and you'd become smarter in all these sorts of ways. 
But I think it also is important to recognize because it means that if you want to get good at something, you're, you have to kind of design these sort of very specific structured experiences. And, uh, and so I think the more you can get into that mentality about it, um, that is, that's very important. Uh, in in designing the things that you want to get good at if you want to become a better you know communicator you really need to break that down to like well it's going to be some specific habits it's going to be some specific things that i actually have to work on it's not going to just be like you know ah, i'm going to just do this and i'm going to be yeah you know, all round better yeah i can't i can't do just do the thing that isn't that uncomfortable and get good at the thing that's uncomfortable as well because i think yeah, public yeah. speaking is a great example isn't it you could read all about it you like but until you get up on stage in front of people and you start wedding you're not going to actually um yeah fully be able to uh absolutely uh, well, drill it and learn but just well gonna... even and even just even just things like you know uh there's going to be a lot of specific things for just having a podcast conversation right and so i i do think that's a that's a big sort of underrated factor especially because so much of our institutions are trying to give people the broadest skills possible that um this is a sort of this is a less talked about consequence because it's, it's obviously bad. It's obviously not like <laughs> yeah. it'd be nice if it was the opposite. So I think, and, and I think there is a lot of um, overly rosy optimistic kind of paintings in, in psychology, which like I think are often not taken very seriously by people who are experts because they, they have so much information to know why that kind of thing would be implausible, but to the average person, it sells. So you have things talking about, you know, I, I love learning languages, but you read these studies where people are talking about, oh, well, if you learn a second language, it's going to make you smarter in all these sorts of ways. And I'm like, mm, <laughs> I don't know about that. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I mean, I know you're showing me the study, but that 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 raises lots of red flags, yeah. uh, you know, and then you see that they actually have like, oh, it was no controls. We just found people who happen to speak two languages and they're smarter in certain ways. Yeah, like, there's a whole bunch right. of survivorship right. bias going on there. and everything. All right. So I think I think, again, I don't want to be, there's the, I want to focus on the practical. I want to focus on the useful and not just be sort of throwing cold water on what people um, think or would like to think about things. And I think the idea here is just that when you're designing efforts at improvement, it helps to think about what is the exact skill I'm trying to get good at? Um, you know, who can I study from? Who can I learn from to sort of emulate that exact skill? How can I practice it? How can I get feedback? How can I, how can I do all those sorts of things so that I'm getting good at the thing that I'm trying to get good at. And I think the more focused you can be in that way, the more efficient you can be. Because certainly if you're casting a really broad net, um, it is much harder. And so uh, again, it's, it's, it can be somewhat disappointing because a lot of the goals people have maybe are unrealistic. They're just, you know, I want to do brain training because I just want to be generally smarter, yeah. which uh, it would be nice if that worked that way, but it doesn't seem to be the case. No, and I want to put a pin in that because this sort of gets onto the, the, the discussion I wanted to have with you about education, yeah. but we'll get to that mm -hmm. later. I, I want to sure. circle back to your parents because obviously being early childhood educators, I think, I mean, because my wife's a kinder teacher as well. Mm, and and yeah. what seems to be, I think, crystallizing my mind is the, the early years so, seems so much more important than we've ever indexed them for. It's mm. like we've over-indexed on the latter years of education. And yeah. and I think from what I'm seeing on, on the work she's been doing and, and like the effects that she's been having with the kids that she's mm -hmm. with is like if we can put in the 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 hard yards earlier on to help with emotional well-being and and like impulse uh, impulsivity and all those sort of things it it almost sets the the track for making learning easier later but i think if we don't have those fundamental foundations sort of wired tight and we push people straight into 
I guess, learning just ABCs and one, two, threes early on, it's not necessarily about that. That's, I still yeah. haven't sort of crystallized my thinking around this, but I think there's definitely a, a lot of really useful stuff that we can be working on at earlier years that typically in the past we wouldn't at schools or institutions. It would be straight into how do we get them to learn the, you know, those, the reading and writing and all that sort of yeah. stuff. Whereas I, what seems to be coming out in a lot of the, the research that Sarah has been doing is early years is really about setting the emotional intelligence of the children and, and like the, the ability to see things as just problems and, and work through yeah. them and, and dealing with other kids and that sort of stuff, not just learning stuff by rote, which would have been how I was brought up, I guess, when I was at yeah. kinder. I don't know. I think it's a really interesting uh, field. I don't really have strong opinions about it. I think that, um, you know, my understanding of how like people debate this is that there, there are, there's definitely a viewpoint that, you know, this is what we need to be building in, that we need to be building in kind of emotional intelligence and these sort of general skills. Um, and then there's also the other people that sort of argue that no, 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 those things develop on their own. And that really the only thing we can intervene with is giving people like the quite specific skills and knowledge. So I feel like the the latter one tends to be the one that people, again, it's like the transfer sort of idea. It's yeah. sort of like, that's the, that's the disappointing story. Um, <laughs> uh, but that there is, so there's views on both sides. I don't really have a really strong opinion on it. I feel like I do think that a lot of the early years is probably socializing kids into, um, into a kind of academic environment, which is itself a kind of analog for like living in a modern society, which, you know, as I said, we're Savannah brained, yeah. you know, fire staring people like there's probably quite a bit of enculturation that's pretty important. And so there's, you know, there's a huge range of opinions on education. I also think education is kind of, to be quite frank, it's not it's so ideological that it's very difficult to study it uh, objectively. And so you have a lot of research that mixes people's political predispositions and their viewpoints about like what they think, you know, the normative ideas of like what we should be doing with the kind of, you know, does this, is this feasible with how, you know, brains work and how genetics work and how this kind of thing. So I don't have a really strong opinion about it. I think, um, I think that we probably need both. I think we need to be socializing kids into an environment where they can, you know, cooperate and they can learn, you know, this is the community shared norm values about how you yeah. should behave. We need to be giving kids, I think, uh, positive motivating experiences because especially kids at the sort of lower end, they come in with fewer skills. They're more likely to, I think school often gets into this sort of, you know, even though we say it's not about that, it's really engineered as this kind of there's the winners and the losers. And you know whether you're a winner or a loser. And it's like, well, I don't want to play this game anymore if yeah. I'm on the loser end of it. So I think there is a lot of emotional and psychological components. Um, but I also think there's there's a considerable amount of knowledge and basic skills. So, you know, not to be too disparaging, but like that that look a little bit like rote memorization, which are super important. So, like I said, the ABCs and one two threes. There's a, knowing the ABCs and one two threes is really important, and a lot of kids don't learn it very well. And so, I think this is some of the debate on the teaching of like phonics and stuff that it has this kind of like, oh well, you know, kids will learn that stuff on their own, except they often don't. Yeah, and you have dyslexic kids who, you know, the popular perception is that dyslexia is that like you see the letters backwards, but the research doesn't say that. The research says that, well, what the problem is when you have dyslexia is that you have a hard time making a sound letter correspondence. You have a hard time isolating the the difference between cat and 
and dat or like you yeah. know the de k. It's it's not natural for us to do that. We're born with the sort of hardwiring to learn to speak a language and listen to it automatically, but not to read. And that's a very much a new ability. And so I think there is a lot of interesting research on how we can improve that with kids. And one of it seems to be that, you know, kids sometimes come in with a little bit more difficulty acquiring one of these building blocks. That building block never gets taught for them. They fail. And then they kind of that perpetuates and then just sort of accumulates this disadvantage throughout their later um, abilities. So I think um, the sort of, you know, direct instruction in the sort of basic skills of, you know, the three R's and whatever, um, I think there's a point to be made for that too. So th- the ideal would be something that harmonizes it so that kids can, you know, learn to read, write and add and and they learn. So in a way that if, you know, if they were missing something, someone caught that early on That's and right. they just didn't get set up for yeah. a life of failure. And, but also the social and emotional part. So that they feel like, you know, they, they feel like they're good at something and they feel like they're doing something that's interesting and they're not just, you know, sitting behind a desk and bored out of their skulls uh, in, in a sort of, you yeah. know, slightly better version of daycare. So I don't know. I think this is a, it, it's a challenging problem. And I think there's really my, my honest feeling is that we don't know enough about it. And I think that there need to be more sort of rigorous studies that kind of measure these things. Because again, a, a lot of educational research has this ideological flavor that like, whether you believe in like Rousseau <laughs> and that like the kids should be off, you know, living in the forest and just learning naturally, or you believe in the kind of the opposite that no, 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 we need to be drilling like Latin grammar conjugation because that's the right way to educate. It's just, it's hard to sort the the wheat from the chaff. Yeah, I, I agree as well in the sense that I think if we don't pick up those fundamental things, you, you sort of compounding a negative that is just setting the kid up for failure, like super long-term. And dyslexic's yeah. a great example of that. I think, um, you know, and it really harks to how kids can be really good at failure early on. They don't give a damn. Like you look how a child learns how to walk and they, they're falling over, you know, they're just get back up, falling over, get back up. They don't try three times and then give up. Whereas I think when, when, when we get into that system of scoring and the best person or the person that nails something good and then the rest sort of give up because like, ah, I can't do what Jimmy does. You know, that's the thing that I think we, we lose as kids as we become adults, we 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 gain this sort of fear of failure that becomes almost uh, paralyzing for a lot of people, and and I wonder what it is that sort of knocks that out of us. Whether it is this winner takes all approach to our society in general, and or I mean, yeah. what what you're thinking about how well, you know kids are very uh, yeah. good at being terrible at things because I've heard you say in the past that the future belongs to people that are okay with being terrible at things. Yeah, I mean, I think it, to me, it seems like there's a there's a little bit of a distinction between the way that you would rank people on an ability and and designing an education system that's really good at ranking people versus designing a system that takes you from wherever you are and moves you the furthest forward in any particular direction. And it does seem like a lot of our educational institutions are better designed for the ranking function than for the, you know, growth function. And I don't want to like, you know, point any specific fingers there. Cause I think this is just, it's, it's something that maybe even implicitly we care a lot about the ranking. Like why do people care so much that you went to Harvard or whatever? It's certainly yeah. not because, Oh, well, you know, Harvard was literally the best at like 
taking you from where you are and moving you forward. No, it's because Harvard has really, really strict uh, admissions requirements. It's really hard to get into Harvard. And so if you went there, it probably means you're pretty smart. Like it's not sort of about that. It's about that absolute ranking rather than like how much they were able to move you forward. So I become a real big fan of things like mastery learning systems, which is the idea that students really need to master one level before going on to the level that requires it beyond that. And so this might mean that students are like totally different places and they're yeah. in different positions in school and, and this kind of thing. But it means that, you know, you're always working on a set of lessons and tasks that are appropriate for you so that you fail some of the time, but you succeed some of the time. So like what you were saying with failure, I think some of it is also like, a, you know, if you fail consistently at something, uh, I think you also develop a kind of, oh, I can't do this. And so yeah. I'm going to, I'm not going to learn it. I'm going to find some way to avoid dealing with the failure. Like maths, we're, we're maths actually very classical, isn't it? you know? And so many people will say, yeah. oh, I'm just no good at maths. And and yeah. really, it's probably just that they've had some really bad, a series of really bad experiences and where everyone else learned something quicker than them. And then they just sort yeah. of put a stop on it. Yeah, I don't want to have that feeling anymore. Well, and, and the thing too is that people come into... Uh, learning situations with just such a diverse set of background experiences and native abilities and attitudes and whatnot that you're never having people starting like when you say beginners but that they're never starting at exactly the same level of competency and so it's you know i've been in this situation myself because i've certainly been in places where i've been at the top of the class and it's been easy for me and it's like oh whatever and then i've had situations where i've been at the bottom of the class and like the emotional difference <laughs> between those two experiences <laughs> yeah. is huge it's huge and i think our motivational hardwiring is very much to try to find our niche in society like you know we're we're used to living in a social group and so if we're really bad at something compared to others especially something that's not like necessary for our survival we do tend to disinvest in that and i think that's and so all you need to do is just put someone where they're in the bottom of the class and kind of chastise them for being so stupid at something and then they just shut down oh, i'm not going to do this right yeah. so i think that's a very common situation and we do this accidentally all the time yeah uh, you know i remember uh, so uh, look, this is just a little example, but I remember when um, I, I was doing the language learning project and we were in Spain, we'd only been there for a couple of weeks. And I mean, in retrospect, I think we were doing quite well for how short a time we've been there, but we met all these Italians and they were also kind of in the same boat and they're speaking Spanish. Their Spanish is so much better than <laughs> ours is. And I remember at the time, my interpretation of that is, well, you know, it's these Europeans. These Europeans, they're so good at learning languages, you know, where I'm like, I'm one of these dumb North Americans and these monolingual <laughs> English. This is, it's not good for me. And it was only much, much later, you know, traveling Italy and stuff, you realize actually Italian is so similar to Spanish. Like the amount of, you know, of a like starting yeah. right before the finish line that you get <laughs> when you already know that language is huge. It's huge. And, but that wasn't the interpretation I made at the time, you know? And so I, I think it didn't harm me in this particular instance. But if I'd interpreted, oh, I'm not good at this, I would have maybe disinvested effort in that particular moment when it was just like, that was just a false theory of how that worked. You know, I can think of another situation where, uh, again, uh, going to France uh, and I was in a French class and I was put in a class I didn't realize with people who had spent like four or five years learning French. <laughs> and I was the worst of the class. And the teacher was always like getting after me for like, okay, well, what is this? Come on. You know, this like they had this kind of like scolding yeah. tone. Yeah. And, um, I, you know, in retrospect, I was thinking like, you know, I'm a pretty confident guy, as you can see. So it didn't, <laughs> it didn't harm, harm me that much. 
But if I had been insecure about learning a language in that point, I might have just totally given up yeah. at that point. And so I do think that that's, it's, it's super important to not only find your right kind of level of difficulty, um, sort of that continuum of mastery, and it's super important to find that kind of environment where you're going to be, again, challenged enough so that it's not boring and and um, not at a level where you're being kind of slapped on the wrist for not having reached the level that the people have done it for three years of already. And this happens everywhere. You have people who are going into computer science classes. Like I, I knew a woman who she did a master's in civil engineering. So she knows like the differential equations for fluid dynamics and yeah. whatever. And she's doing like an intro programming class where they're doing like hello world and stuff. And she was like, no, 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 this was too difficult for me. That's ridiculous. It's so much easier than the stuff she's actually studied. But she's going in this class. There's a bunch of new nerdy kids from high school yeah. who did all this programming. And they're like, it's obvious for them. Yeah. And so because it's not obvious for her, she's interpreting the environment. Her brain is making a very rational decision, which is that I seem to be less good at this as other people. I'm not going to invest in this skill, you know, but it's just, it's a, it's an illusion created by being in this weird environment. So I think we need to be sensitive to that and we need to be sensitive of how we create that for our children, because if our children are in a situation where it's harder for them and, you know, we're making them feel dumb or this kind of thing, they're going to disinvest. But in the other end, if you make them feel like, oh, well, you know, you're just, you're just able to succeed at this because you're smart and this kind of thing. Then as soon as they encounter some challenge, they're going to feel the same way, you know? And so I think that's that, how that environment creates around you. It's huge. Well, I think, and that, that sort of harks to the point you make in the book about the family that um, train their daughters to become chess prodigies. <laughs> and the initial things were, they just made it fun. Like they'd sit around yeah. the dining table and it, and it became a fun activity. And it, it made me think about the first time I tried to teach my eldest daughter, Annie, how to surf. You know, mm-hmm. I completely went about it the wrong way. You know, I I made it possibly the worst experience she could have had for her first time like go at surfing and yeah. I've, I've since had friends because i live on the surf coast they've all said the thing they've all learned like all the passionate surfers yeah. is all you have to do is not make the first 10 15 experiences suck that's it yeah. you just you just have to make it as fun as possible yeah. and and really ratchet back your expectations on on what you think they need to do to have fun and be much more attuned to hey let's just make this thing this environment fun to be in and if we can nurture that that's that's pretty much all we need to do we just need to get them excited about putting a wetsuit on and jumping in the water if we can yeah. get over that hurdle then you know maybe it's going to be a 6 month lead to get to the stage where they're going to start learning surfing but at least we're not going to set ourselves back two years after they get dumped on the beach and have a really bad experience. And I've, I've had another, I did an interview last week mm-hmm. with um, the, the, the Braxma family in, in New Zealand. And they did this epic, like 8,000 kilometer bikepacking journey with their kids. But the eldest daughter, um, so Adrian really tried to push his daughter into like getting... Uh, on the bikes and doing this adventure stuff and and he said he 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 reckons he he knocked her, um her sense of confidence back about two years because she had a really bad experience that first time and i think yeah if we can just nurture the environment where they're just having fun and it becomes something they want to do not have that feeling of oh man i'm bad at this or this sucks and yeah. then you sort of naturally try and like you say fit into that niche and go this is not a niche for me no, I mean, I, I completely agree. And I think it's uh, that that can definitely happen, you know, and I think it can also happen when 
when the skill is kind of presented in such a way that, you know, we, we, pr- we approach so many of these learning tasks like they're kind of mysteries, you know? Like the idea of like speaking a language is, is just like, it's like a gift that you have. And um, it, it, to me, that just seems so ridiculous because it's just so transparently like, well, you learn the words, you learn the grammar, <laughs> you learn the pronunciation, you say it a bunch of times until it becomes like, it's just, it's such a mechanical task in my mind. And I know the people who are like romanticized, they're like, oh, it's not, you can't translate ineffability of blah, blah, blah. It's BS, right? Like it is something you can definitely learn how to do. Anyone can learn how to do it. It is, it is work, you know, even despite my challenges and this kind of thing, it's, it takes a lot of time, but it's definitely doable. Right. And I think the issue is that you, when you romanticize these things, sometimes you also, you, you try to, uh, in making them inexplicable and making them something that requires genius, that requires some ineffable creative spark. (laughs) Um, basically you just tell people who don't, immediately succeed at it don't don't even bother yeah right and i you know i think that's true for art as well like you talk to a lot of people oh i oh, i can't draw or this kind of thing well like have you learned how like i mean like yeah. it's, it's, have you broken it down into what it actually is you know and there's lots of skills involved in doing it and they're all pretty mechanical i mean i i don't want to say that like every single thing can be reduced down to a recipe it obviously can't but the basic processes of learning things i think are accessible to everyone the difference is sometimes we tell people what those processes are and they can acquire them and sometimes we don't and then we're just like well if you picked it up on your own good for you and if you can't then you know too bad so i I do think that that's definitely you know how i would approach things with my son is also just sort of recognize what are the things that he's like he does have that sort of knack for and they're going to be fine and make sure he's challenged and joined and then for the things that you know maybe he's not as good at how can you create an environment where it's like, well, this is not so awful that I'm never going to do it again. Right. (laughs) And I think it's very easy to, you know, for people who are struggling to interpret um, their sort of lack of effort is like in, in, I would say sort of moralistic terms, like this person's lazy or this person, you know, Oh, they're like, Oh, this person is so motivated to do it because like, it's easy for them. Right. Yeah. 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 So I think, I think it's about a question of like, well, how can you make it so that it's something that's interesting and fun? So, I mean, this is, I, I have a two and a half year old, like you were saying, like I, you know, I'm full of parenting theories. We'll see how they hit the road. We, we were talking before um, the recording came on about like, you know, I'm going to have a second one and then you can tell me, uh, interview me after that. Cause every person is different. Every situation yeah. is different. Um, so I, I don't purport to have any uh, deep wisdom there, but I do think that um, my overall belief about learning is that it is an, uh, a rational process that you can understand that you can learn any skill that anyone else can do. You can also learn and there's a process of doing it. Sometimes it's a lot of work. Yeah. <laughs> sometimes some people are better at it than other people. So I don't want to deny that. But I think if you can understand that process, then you can do it yourself. So if you want to learn something, there's a process for doing it. Yeah. I, I think um, just going back to like your parents as well, you, they've yeah. obviously been real inspirations for you as a parent. They've been role models yeah. that you've almost, you've you've watched them for years and years, like being mm-hmm. parents. And so mm-hmm. you must have such a catalog of just, this is some great ways to do this. This is how this worked really well, this situation. And I wonder how many people actually don't have that great sort of upbringing and they do end up having an away goal around parenting. I know I certainly... Yeah. There are certain things, I think in the generation that I was brought up in as well, there are certain things that weren't amazing at all. Like that language, that fixed mindset language, oh, you're amazing at this. And you get really nurtured in that sense. But actually it sort of, 
it makes you think that oh yeah like i think drawing is an example i i was yeah. i really loved drawing as a kid and i was i was told by everyone oh you're amazing you should become an artist and all this sort of stuff and then i remember having this like art competition at school i'd won loads of art competitions and stuff but then mm-hmm. i had one it was to design the school logo uh, of a new shirt yeah. and and i came second and i was like well hang on everyone told me i'm amazing <laughs> And yeah. and I just lost the competition. You know what's this yeah. all about? And it it and only now I realise it knocked me back for years. It really yeah. knocked the the wind out of my sails. That I like, all that stuff that people had told me about being amazing. That's that was lies. It well it wasn't true because I lost that competition. And and so it's yeah. it's the weirdest things that you know I reflect on. And I know when it comes to parenting. I started this podcast because I was looking for the expert interviews. I was like, who out there is nailing it? Who do I want to talk to that I think has really got this wired tight and what can I learn from them? But I think halfway through, I realized, actually, I just need to sort my own shit out. Like I need to, there's so much more I need to unpack and figure out around keeping you, keeping you cool was a big one. You know, that is like, I reckon that is, if you can just do that as a parent, like you will be light years ahead of a former you that loses their cool or just can't keep a lid on it or whatever. And, and there are certain things in parenting, I think that are, I want to say fundamental, but really it's almost like the first things you should work on. And I I get the feeling, and this, you know, this is just my data point of one, but I get the feeling that doing the work on yourself is so much more beneficial so that you can just show up and it not be about you in the face of whatever (laughs) drama your kids are having. Oh, yeah. No, I mean, that's a deep thing. I think that, I think it's inevitable that we project, I'm going to get all psychoanalytic on you, but like <laughs> we it. project whatever our, like our, our childhood failures and aspirations and what, like that becomes our, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to try to project that on my kids. So it's like, <laughs> if, if you were like almost an athlete, but your parents didn't quite yes. push you, then you become like, you know, the coach from hell. If you were, you know, uh, like if, if you know you you didn't do x then you, you you're going to do that for your kid and that's that's what's going to happen and i mean some of that's just rational some of that's just like okay this seemed to be a mistake so i'm going to do the other thing but i think some of it is also like as i said you know people people need to sort out their own shit right and not, like, <laughs> yeah. not make it about their kids i think that's true of relationships too you know a lot of people get into like relationships and then like the way they deal with one relationship is like to overcompensate for the failures of the last relationship you know they're dealing with it however this person you know instead of dealing with it in the situation as it should be you know you're you're kind of trying to process something that you were going through so i do think being um you know content and you know secure in your own life and this kind of thing is probably the best way to parent just because you're not doing that right you're not doing so much of that projection and you know that being said like a a super weirdo like me i I probably have all sorts of psychological baggage so we'll find out how i'm gonna mess up my kid uh 15 years from now and it'll be like oh yeah yeah i shouldn't have been so focused on that that was because of you know x what happened to me when i was a kid but it's it's the perfect environment to stress test this stuff isn't it because it does (laughs) it pushes you to the absolute limit and then over and you go man i didn't realize i could actually be that tired like (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah fatigue is definitely a big part i mean we were talking about this before but I, i don't think you've ever really you don't really know what tired is until you have like a newborn (laughs) that's right yeah take it to a new level 
yeah. <laughs> or new depths, I should say. But I yeah, think yeah. that that's when you default to your training. Or, well, I want to say training. Mm. I think that's the moment when you default to how you've seen it done when you were brought up. Right. And I think there's a big part there that we don't even acknowledge. We don't even know. And I know there's situations where I've like been triggered and gone, Oh man, where did that come from? That yeah. that is not something I was, you know, I didn't intentionally do that. And and but but over the the, the years, I'm sort of I'm doing as much work as I can, and I think it's the personal yeah. work to actually just be almost not divorced from the situation, so you're not triggered by those situations. And that's been the biggest sort of learning curve for me, I think. But uh, man, it's a whole whole heap of work, and uh, and obviously not not everyone comes with that sort of background. But um, yeah, it's definitely been a, an exciting adventure to sort of unpack that stuff and and try to be a bit more like, no, how do I want to show up in those situations, and then try to figure out a way to actually build some yeah. scaffolding around being able to do that. Yeah. And I mean, I think also you recognize your, uh, you know, your parents as well, because just they have so much influence on you, just even genetically, like you, you realize like, oh, they're a certain type of person. And I just happen to be that type of person. Not because I learned it from them, just because I am that way. Like, I noticed like my, my parents are like somewhat, somewhat anxious people. They're definitely on that end of the spectrum of, of that. And, uh, you know, I noticed it in myself. Like I, I know other people that they're just they go through things very calmly. They're not like, you know, and, and I am like, I'm definitely more of a worrier. I'm more imaginal and like, you know, overthinking and stressing about things. And I think sometimes that's also just recognizing, you know, this is, this is sort of how I am. And then like your, your life is kind of developing coping mechanisms for that. So I think that's something that's important too. And and so I think when you're, you know, raising your kids is they're recognizing what kind of kid they are, you know, and, and like, what, what do they need? to thrive uh which is going to be different from some other kid you know what i mean like there's going to be the kid that has like tons of energy and it's going to be guiding that energy and then there's going to be the kid who's sort of like you know shy and needs needs nurturing and encouragement like there's there's going to be all sorts of kids and so i think that's why it's so hard to come up with some grand parenting theory because yeah most of what you're doing is dealing with like the idiosyncrasies of the situation well and that's why i think i i resort i i started out thinking how can i deal with the kids and make them do what i want them to do and i realized no how can i deal with my own shit and then once i deal with that you know the rest is sort of it's easy easy easier i should say but i think the the most amazing thing as well is that the kids are completely wired differently like it's (laughs) it's amazing you're like hang on hang on they've essentially started from the same genetic sort of soup like and they're completely different persons wired right from the dot uh and it's it's fascinating it is endlessly fascinating i think parenting is one of the most amazing things if you have like even the the smallest amount of curiosity around yeah. you know, human nature and stuff it's it's fascinating what what sort of things have you learned so far scott as being a as far as being a parent around that sort of stuff human behavior oh i mean to me the like the learning capacities of young children are just like amazing because this is this is a you know a creature that like it learns to walk it just 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 from like watching things around it just learn you know your kids learn so much and it's incredible to me because you take for granted like this is just your your background it's invisible right but but at some point you know every little little like obvious thing to you was totally brand new and you had to learn it um 
We had to learn the language without and... even actually having someone explain the words. Like it's yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's it's crazy. And and I just think just watching that kind of on a micro level has been you know, it just um, like, and then there's just how it's coming online so quickly, right? Like uh, every, every little detail about like what, you know, how, how you do this, how you do that, what you should be doing here. It, it's just, uh, it's incredible to me. And I think that's something we often, as I said, take for granted because when you become an adult in a particular culture in a society, there's just this huge mass of invisible background, cultural stuff that's so automatic that you don't even think that it was learned at some point, but clearly it was, right? And you because take you it for granted, in a different, yeah. You live in a totally different culture and end up to be a totally different person, you know? And so I think that's one of the things that uh, I think having kids helps you appreciate um, is that that sort of the capacity to, yeah. to learn. And it's magic. We are essentially learning machines. We're just yeah. so good at this thing. And I think we're we, the best learning we, machine that's ever been built. Exactly. So yeah. But, but we kind of forget that. And I think uh, people beat themselves up and, Oh, you know, I'm no good at this and that sort of thing. Yeah. But, but when you reflect, you've learned so many amazing things just to be able to walk here and have this conversation. I mean, you learn language without having another language to learn yeah. from in the first place. And, and I think if we, if we just like, just keep having a touchstone on that, like you, mm-hmm. you can learn amazing stuff. You have learned amazing stuff, and this is just the beginning. And and I get really excited about this whole sort of, I guess, would you call it an epoch that we're going through around mm-hmm. learning? You know, in the past it was classed as school was the learning mechanism, and that was it. You stopped learning when you left university, and then you did your job. Whereas now, yeah. it's so exciting because you can essentially learn anything you want to learn in the whole wide world in such uh, an easily accessible way. You don't have to travel around the world anymore. Like there's so much amazing content online that I I don't, but there's never been a more exciting time to learn anything. Well, that's, that's another point because we've been, I was talking about technological kind of pessimism and, and that's a sort of popular sentiment these days. But I think we, often underrate the optimism. And one of the things that I think is something to be incredibly optimistic is that people today are smarter than they were at any time in human history. And people often forget this because they focus on the smartest sort of yeah. strata. Always of benchmarking society. to someone that's like, doing... Oh, Einstein was so smart. Yeah. Well, yeah, Einstein was very smart, but like literacy levels were lower. <laughs> you know, if you go back two, 300 years, most people couldn't read, right? Yeah. And so the, the average person is just much, much smarter today, even than they were, you know, 50 years ago. I think that's something that's often missed when they talk about like all the dire educational statistics is they're often relative comparisons. You know, it's comparisons between different countries or between people in a particular society or tears and this kind of thing but i mean you know even just like racial stuff where they talk about like testing gaps between you know uh, disadvantaged black kids versus white students what's missing from this is that everyone's gotten so much smarter you know the thing people complain complain about is maybe that the gaps still persist but like the absolute levels have gotten better yeah. we've gotten much better at teaching people we've gotten you know we've gotten richer we've you, we have proper nutrition you know there's not lead in the paint <laughs> anymore like these all things make a huge difference you know yeah. if you had lead as a kid that that damages your brain in ways that make it harder to learn and so these are all huge i think important developments that um people are smarter more sophisticated uh in in many many ways you know they call this the flynn effect where just iq has just been steadily going up um for decades and and part of that i think is just enculturation that we just now have you know uh universal education near universal literacy much better understanding of how these processes work so that's improved quite a bit 
um, you know, better nutrition and, 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 and that kind of, uh, thing as well. And I think these things are, are like enormous factors. And then worldwide, this has also been a big thing. So, you know, I'm talking about like, oh, there's TikTok and this kind of thing that creates this kind of, you know, that movie idiocracy where like, oh, it's just a dumbing down and everyone's just getting stupider. And that's, that's a common narrative, but it's like completely false. Yeah. <laughs> you, well, you only have people to look so at... so much smarter now yeah. than they used to be. And people need to appreciate that. But I even think. from a physical uh, um, expertise perspective as well, yeah. you look at kids, like we're talking sort of like, three-year-olds doing backflips because they've watched youtube videos of kids doing backflips or or gymnasts you know yeah. they have the access accessibility to seeing amazing feats like kids on bmx bikes and stuff like that doing sensational tricks that normally they would have only had that visibility within their neighborhood in the past yeah you know you'd only see the the, the say the 16 year old kids doing bmx backflips and go oh i want to be like that one day whereas now your your filters can open right up to the whole world and you can see the guy that's gone really deep on a certain niche and you can see how he got there you can study his videos and have access to those people so there's there's like this really exciting acceleration i think of access to the very best people in the world if you want to learn from them i mean even think about just dialogues around like this whole covid19 pandemic and everyone was like there was a lot of decrying like well everyone's become this sort of armchair medical expert <laughs> you know why because we spent all this time in school that a lot of people like they think that, that maybe they don't know as much as doctors but they think they know enough that they can understand and yeah. they can participate in this debate i mean i think this is just a fantastic thing i think it's important not to lose sight of that when we're talking about, um, you know, developments and stuff, I think that there are some disadvantages, again, as I said, the sort of hyper stimulus. But I mean, there's no question that I think living in a modern environment is conducive to being uh, smarter, I think, relative to the environment that we live in, uh, than, you know, if you were just, yeah, if you just lived in a very, you know, like you were some sort of peasant in the <laughs> 1500s. Yeah. Your world was very small. You may, I mean, you learned it well and you understood it, but, you know, you probably couldn't read. You know, you had uh, like a very, very limited understanding of how the world worked and um, your opportunities for life were probably constrained to, a, you know, 10 square miles of, of land <laughs> and stuff. You, your life and world was so much smaller. And I think we live in in bigger worlds than we used to. And I think that that's something that often gets, you know, underrated. Well, that reminds me of one of the points in your book about Mary Somerville, because mm. she was, I mean, you, you'll be able to describe her, her better her situation yeah. better than me, but she, she achieved amazing heights of learning in an era when the situation seemed stacked against her. Did she have four yeah. children? And, and it was a time when basically she Five. was, Oh wait! Uh, and, 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 yeah. Someone's going to fact check me on that. Yeah, it doesn't matter. She had she lots. She had lots of yeah. kids, but she yeah. was like a, a housewife, and and women weren't encouraged to learn at all, and it was oh, almost yeah. shunned that that a woman would want to learn anything outside of her, you know, so called yeah. station, and and yeah. yet she went on to achieve amazing feats of learning. And what did you put it down to? I think it was like her just ability to focus. Well, I put her in that chapter because uh, I, I I wanted to pick someone like you can. There's lots of examples of focus playing an important role in learning, and you know I, I remember when I was doing research for the book. There's like people like Paul Erdős, who was um, you know this great Hungarian mathematician, but like, I mean he was also using methamphetamines all the time. Cause he was like, this. there was a period where someone was like, I bet you you know you're addicted. I bet you can't stop, and he stopped for a, for like a month. And he was like, you just set mathematics back as like a whole for humanity <laughs> by one point. Yeah. I, like I can't 
focus. And, you know, I have people like Albert Einstein. I remember he had stomach problems when he was working on general relativity because he's just like concentrating yeah. so hard. The thing I liked about Mary Somerville is because this, this is like a normal person or, you know, even more to that extreme that, you know, she's got to take care of the house. She's got like friends stopping over being like, oh, I want to chat with you for a few hours because like that's the culture she lives yeah. in. She can't just be like, you know, no, shut up. I'm, you know, <laughs> translating Pierre Simone Paz's Celestial Mechanics. Uh, <laughs> and I'm authoring the definitive English edition to this, you know, super complicated book on calculus uh she can't do that right so she has to like squeeze these sort of focus sessions in in these moments so i i you know i, I really empathize with that because i felt like here's a person who's dealing with you know very difficult circumstances but just her tenacity to keep learning is there now and now no question she's very smart so i, I think that's also important to really <laughs> yeah previously state but i think you know, just the idea that like, I'm going to learn about botany while I'm breastfeeding one of my five kids is just a, it's an interesting kind of choice yeah. to make about like what you're going to pursue. Or, you know, um, you know, she's going to bed as a young girl and they're not going to give her a candle to read. So she's like, I'm going to mentally just like work through Euclid's <laughs> geometry. Right? I'm just gonna practice well, it. I do you that know, all like, the time, don't you, Scott? Yeah. So isn't that what you do though? You know, when you're yeah. like, ah, you know, save on some battery. I'm just going to mentally go through Euclid because yeah. I'm not ready to sleep. <laughs> like, I think this is, I mean, it is extreme. And I think a lot of the people I singled out in the book are extreme, but I think it just shows it does show to a certain extent the range of choices that we have here. Yeah, but I think it, it also shows that it's just if we make that decision, we now have so much more to back us. So we don't need yeah. to be negative about this, you know, this sort of like, oh, I can't do this thing. There, there's a whole bunch of stuff we can do, but really just deciding what is it I really want to do first and then yeah. just getting clear about that. And to be excited about it enough that you actually want to do that, you know, like yeah. I think she was just so curious and passionate about it that I think, I don't think it like if, if it was like, oh, I got to do this, it, it, it wouldn't have happened. Right. I think she, she was doing these intellectually challenging things, but she found them very interesting. And so I think you're, you're absolutely right. Like finding that kind of thing that you really want to do is so important. I, I, I think that where I've tripped up in the past is just getting excited about so many things. And and really, I, I suppose it comes back to that idea of between habits and projects as well. But I, I love your idea of like taking on one thing and going full steam at it for a, a short period of time. And then then you've got good at that thing. Then you can choose yeah. the next thing because it's so easy, especially, especially during COVID to go, yeah, I'm going to become good at piano, <laughs> at drawing, at making sourdough, all these things. Whereas I think the people that did probably enjoyed it the most were the ones that went deep on one thing at once. Yeah. I mean, I, my whole philosophy there is just very much related to this idea that there's a kind of difficulty threshold of a lot of skills and activities. And uh, great if you can just ramp up and like very smoothly get into it just automatically, spontaneously. But I think, you know, you look at your own past, you look at the things that you want to do, French, piano, <laughs> painting, whatever, and you're like, how much of those did I actually do beyond, you know, an hour or two? And it probably wasn't very much because you didn't get into that level where it was fun. So I think that is a big part of my philosophy is like getting it to that point where, oh, now I just enjoy this. And I, I don't like if I don't want to get I don't have to master it. I can just keep doing it. So I think that's important. Yeah. Hey, Scott, I've just looked at the time and like I've totally blown past what we what we discussed. Yeah, no, no, I'm so fun. appreciative. But uh, we better wind it up here because I know you've got a hard stop at um, sure. uh, at six o'clock. So um, but I just want to say to listeners out there, 
If you haven't seen Scott's book already, get it. It's epic, ultra learning. I mean, and also you've got your newsletter, which you put so much good information out there and you have been for years. So like, hats off to you, Scott. And, you know, learn fast, achieve more. It's really inspirational what you're doing, Scott. I just want to say a big thank you. And um, is there anything else that you would suggest to listeners if they want to, you know, sort of pursue or, well, or I guess, follow up on what you're doing or, you know, any inspiration for, you know, learning in yeah. general? I mean, as you said, like uh, the, there's my website, there's over 1500 free articles there. Um, I have a podcast as well, where I uh, have a few guests and I also um, uh, talk about a lot of the same ideas that we've been talking about. And of course, the, my book, Ultra Learning, you can get it at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Audible. Again, yeah. I'm sick of listening to you right now. You can listen I got, to I've it. I've got both, Kindle and, and Audible. Yeah, and it, 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 it covers a lot of these ideas. I mean, it takes a lot of work to assemble a book. So hopefully it will provide you some useful ideas uh, in taking on your own learning projects. Yeah. I, and just to sort of top that off, I think I found it much more better as a reference book to to go through it once, but then to go back to it again and again. So it, it's really, Thanks. yeah, you've done a great job. And I just want to say a big thanks for all the hard work you've put in and, and good luck with the uh, the adventure of being a parent. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, I'll have to update you as it goes along. Thank yeah, you. I'd love that. <laughs> thanks, Scott. Well, I hope you enjoyed this discussion with Scott. If you'd like to check out his book or catch up with him, I'll put all the links in the show notes on the website, thedadmindset.com. If you enjoyed this episode and know someone else that might like it too, sharing is a super great way to support the show. Also, if you have any great ideas for guests you'd like me to interview, send me an email or just say hi at rich at thedadmindset.com. Anyway, that's all from me for now. I hope you have a great week and as ever... Enjoy your caffeinated beverage.